a top of the new year to you, and I appreciate very much the fact that you have come by here to hear what we have to say on this podcast. Tellage Talks heading into a new year. So thanks once again. Our guest this week is a gentleman by the name of Matt Lodi. He's been a longtime member of the media here in Northeast Ohio in Cleveland, but he has an inspirational story. He is now battling, well, he was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma, and he took to social media to kind of chronicle some of the goings on for him dealing with his lymphoma. And he's a very inspirational guy, good, good friend of mine. And I wanted to chat with him, not only about how you deal with something so traumatic that comes into your life, but how faith, how the support of others has helped him as he's moved along the way. He is also someone I wanted to chat with because He is one of those guys that forms the backbone of the internet, the information that you get for your sports day in and day out. He has owned a website. The website is called Northeast Ohio Sports Insiders, and he has had that up for five years now. And he's also, with his expertise being the coverage of the Cleveland Indians, he is now writing for SI Now, that's Sports Illustrated Now, and he has the site called the Cleveland Baseball Insider on SI Now. So he has his fingers in the internet. He's a guy who has opinions about sports in Northeast Ohio, and we chatted mostly about his battle with cancer. We chatted a little bit about just dealing with putting up a website and how uh, it's it's pretty much a very difficult endeavor to do that. So we talked about that and also some of his thoughts on what's going on with the Indians and also parlaying his knowledge of the National Football League. We chatted a bit about the, the latest goings on in Berea, Ohio, the Cleveland Browns and what they have been up to. Matt Lodi, I hope you enjoy him on Tellage Talks. Matt, I don't think you figured that you would be a tool of inspiration for a lot of people, but it's kind of worked out that way. How, how did this whole very difficult journey begin? You know, John, um, you know, health-wise for me, I started to have some stomach issues back a, a year ago. Actually, it was a year ago last month in December, and, you know, it really just started out like a you know, hey, you're getting older, you're 44, you got acid reflux. That was Welcome originally, club, yeah, that's what originally my doctor told me. But it kept getting progressively worse, and finally to the point where I ended up in the emergency room at Sidemen um, on the last day of April. Okay. Um, it was it was really just to the point that it progressed where originally my doctors had said, okay, this is pancreatitis, which is, of course, inflammation of the pancreas. And I was, okay, get me hooked up to whatever I need to get hooked up to. Let's get it out of me, whatever. Um, they ran a second CAT scan, uh, not a CAT scan, what they call a PET scan. Okay. I don't know why it's all PET, PET, CAT, you know, whatever. Try to send a so, dog scan too. Yeah, but, we need some. Yeah, we need rough give them a squirrel scan or something. <laughs> but anyway, um, upon the second cat scan or I'm sorry, pet scan that they ran, they noticed that um, there was there was a lot of inflammation in different areas, and that's a pretty big indicator that there there's cancer. Uh, okay. And and for me, it was you know, and I want to preface this by telling everybody that when I was diagnosed with stage four right away like they told they it, it wasn't a progressive thing they just walked in and, the, and my oncologist was like you got stage four lymphoma the difference between 
Let's Back see. that up for a second. He's, he, she says this. She, she just She's walks a, in. Yeah, she walks in. Like she that. goes. I mean, well, literally, she walks in. My father's on my left side. My, my wife is on my right side. And he said, I'm. I, the originally was a doctor, and he had said, I hate to have to tell you this, but this is going to end up being cancer. And you're just. I'm sitting in a hospital bed, and it just. It, it, it it's really that quickly, okay. and it hits you that hard. So, once I had a little bit of time to digest it. Um, my, the oncologist comes in and she says, you know, we're diagnosing you with stage four lymphoma. The difference between lymphoma and let's say you go to a doctor and you get diagnosed with say, you know, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, bone cancer is that lymphoma is blood. So what they do with lymphoma, which is a little bit different is they diagnose where, where it's at. And for me, it was pancreas, liver and stomach and kidney. And then they diagnose how aggressive it is. Um, mine was pretty aggressive. So they wanted to... So that's how you get the stage four diagnosis. Right. By the degree by the, of aggressiveness. By the aggressiveness and, <laughs> and how many organs it's attacking. Gotcha. And for me, it was four. So they wanted to isolate me right away, get me going on chemotherapy right away. The original diagnosis was that I would go through six rounds of chemo and we thought we'd be out of the woods. Well, as life would go, it wasn't really that simple. We ended up going through three rounds of chemo, went back in July. It wasn't technically going away to the to the speed that they wanted it to, so they upped my chemo. Um, that was like one of the times you came to visit at Sideman. And they said, hey, you know, we're gonna try a different type of chemo. We're also gonna go through and give you what's called a stem cell transplant, which basically is like resetting your entire body. So the next rounds of chemo worked. I was technically diagnosed with, um, you know, to be in remission. Uh, I believe that was late, late August, early September. Mm -hmm. And then um, we scheduled the stem cell transplant for October 14th. So we are now at the 70, 80 day mark. Um, they say the, the critical time for the stem cell transplant is 100 days. So that would technically be about the 24th, 25th of January, which is oddly enough, the night of a fundraiser my high school's putting on for me, which is great. Um, but, you know, as we talked before we, we started recording here, you know, I'm still having some side effects. What, you know, um, I've had some back issues the last couple of days. Uh, my stomach has been bothering me a little bit. And it's really difficult to sit here and self-diagnose, number one, which we did that. Everybody does that, you know, that. But also, number two, not to panic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my wife and I are, are pretty firm in our faith and in, in saying, hey, you know, if this is the direction the Lord wants me to go, if there's something that's sort of reoccurred, we'll deal with it. So we have an oncologist appointment next week. We'll probably end up having to do another PET scan and um, we'll just go from there. And whatever it will be, it'll be, you know. Um, I feel health wise, though, you know, just just the technology and the things that they did for me. I mean, they were so gracious at Sidemen, the way that they worked quickly and the, the oncologists, the doctors, the nurses, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better, you know, we are really blessed to be here in Cleveland because between the clinic and university, we have such amazing doctors and, you know, we're in the, I guess, the cancer capital, if you will, <laughs> of the world. If you're going to get cancer, this is where I guess you, you want to get it, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a day by day thing, John, and you really can't, you know, you really don't want to sit here and, you know, I can't look too far ahead in my life, but I also don't want to sit there and, and just, you know, what would you say? Just like, you know, woe is me. I won't yeah. do that either, you know. No. So I'm looking forward to March and getting out to Goodyear with the Indians and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll build a snowman on March 26th, opening day down at Progressive Field, and we'll go from there. So Yeah, that's but, the uh, March 26th. Isn't that unbelievable? That's, that's insane, man. Mm. 
I was talking with Chris Asenheimer of the Chronicle Telegram the other day, and I said, you know, I come home from Goodyear March 16th. Opening day is nine days from that. That is just, that is unbelievable, you know? I mean, or ten days, somewhere around there, nine, ten days. But I'm like, that's unbelievable. It's like, I, part of me doesn't like that, you know, we're, you know, like, what, are we just going to start on St. Patrick's Day pretty soon, Major League Baseball? But, you know, on the other hand, I know Indians fans are excited because it's a home game. So even if it's 20 degrees and there's snow on the ground, they'll come out. You know that. So. Well, the crazy thing is, is we're, we're recording this on the 3rd yeah. of, yeah, January. of January. It's, it's yeah, it's 45, 50 degrees. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been a weird winter, which gives me a little bit of hope that hopefully once March 26 arrives, it won't be as bad as we think <laughs> it'll be. But everybody's talking about, oh, it's going to be snow and wind and cold. You know, they play that Thursday, yep. and then they're off on Friday, and then they got Saturday, Sunday. And the one thing, and I think I told you this a while ago, that's so bizarre to me is that day, that 26th of March, not only do you have the Indians opening at, what, probably 4 o'clock. I mean, yep. that's usual. Oh, but some guy named LeBron is going to be next door that night, and the Lakers and Cavs will be playing at 7.30 or 7 o'clock or whatever yes. it is. So it's a good day. Hey, if you're a sports fan in Cleveland, get downtown, go to the Indians game, and then go to the Cavs game because it's one of the few Cavs games I'm sure people will really be, you know, have a vested interest in let's get back a little bit if we can sure. to to the whole medical situation that you found yourself in you mentioned you've got strong faith mm-hmm. and that's a bedrock for how you and your, your bride operate what other things uh how did folks that you uh come across uh, pure strangers sure. how did that impact you as you're trying to keep that positivity through everything i think you know, when I when I first got diagnosed, John, I wasn't really looking, certainly wasn't looking for attention. It wasn't like I was yeah. seeking that. But in our world of social media, it is easier now than ever before to not only to relate to people, but also to share things, sure. you know. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I think I have like 8,000 Twitter followers, which is nothing compared to what most people have, you know, as far as our business is concerned. But it was interesting to me. And just sharing, you know, throughout the course of, of the cancer journey and even the beginning of the cancer journey, you know, some of what I was going through and the amount of people that would respond, you know, whether it's by direct message or even just, you know, and tweeting back at you or whatever. <laughs> and it was it was kind of comforting to know that, first of all, I think it's always comforting to know that you're not alone. You know, that other people have gone through either worse or similar. Yeah. Um, you know, complete strangers, like you said, whether it's people that... I'm quote unquote friends with on Twitter or people that follow me and I follow them back or people in our industry. Um, I brought up the name a couple times, Betsy Kling, the longtime yes. you know, weather forecaster at Channel 3. Her dad had the exact same diagnosis as me, uh, Tim Kling. So, you know, she asked and, and she gave me his email and we traded some emails back and forth. Um, you know, people that I've worked with, you know, throughout uh, my tenure in the industry here at places like the Associated Press, um, NBC Sports Radio, places like that. You know, a lot of people, it's interesting because I'm sure you'll you'll agree, a lot of people either know somebody that's had cancer or um, have dealt with it themselves, you know. So everybody's kind of got a story. Um, and the one thing I always told myself, and, and I've said a couple of times on different podcasts and everything, was I would never downplay what other people are going through. Yeah. I think that's wrong to do. I think if everybody, oh, just get suck it up and get up and go on your yeah. merry way. That, it's not fair to do that, you know? So for me, it was, I shared my story. A lot of people responded in kind. Um, but then throughout the course of, of time, you kind of build relationships then and you're willing to listen. You know, there's one person on Twitter, a gentleman on Twitter, who's just a regular Cleveland sports fan who, you know, has had, I've seen him go through a lot of ups and downs with this. 
And every time I see them have a tough spot, I'm always quickly to, you know, quickly right there to tell them like, hey man, I'm praying for you, hang in there, you know, because I, th- I just think that little bit of encouragement hopefully will, will help down the road. So um, the social media aspect of this journey for me has probably been the most revealing. Um, you know, another story, and I told this to Zach Meisel of The Athletic when he wrote the article about me on Christmas Eve. Um, people in our industry, as I mentioned, but like even people that I haven't talked to in 20, 25 years. And the one name that came up in our conversation uh, was, was Susie Giuliano, yes. who, of course, used to work for the Indians many years ago. We love Susie. Love Susie. She was great. She was the lady who would handle the credentials. At those days, you would fax over to the <laughs> Indians, hey, can I come to the game tonight or whatever? And she would have the pass ready. She, on LinkedIn of all places, which I don't use very often, but I'm on it, um, reached out to me and was, hey, Matt, I read your story, you know, so on and so forth. And I was just like, wow. You know what I mean? And again, just for her to take the time to do that, you know yeah. what I mean? She didn't have to do that. I mean, it was great of her to reach out. And we actually then traded some emails and everything like that. And, and I know Zach wrote about it a little bit in the uh, in the article he wrote. It was just, it was incredible to see stuff like that, you know? Um you know, Jensen uh, Lewis, of course, and Al Pulowski mentioned it. Uh, Underwood and Manning mentioned it on the air. You know, because my, my association with Cleveland sports is probably most associated with the Indians. Yeah, because you it's cover what them I, all, but you, right. you but know, the Indians, the Indians are... That relationship's been pretty special. And last year was 25 years, so that was pretty special to me. So, and just getting to cover the All-Star game and, and getting to do that last year, even going through this thing, was, was pretty awesome, you know. So, um, but yeah, it's been a journey. And, you know, like I said, I'm not... I don't look at myself as out of the woods yet. Sure. Um, you know, they tell you pretty much once you get cancer, you need to really go through a couple of years and then, you know, of remission before you can really, I don't want to say feel comfortable because that, again, that sounds kind of trite, but before you really could probably can turn the corner to say, okay, this is not likely to come back. Um, I have another friend of mine who, oddly enough, was in Seidman the same time I was. He uh, was in remission for six years and it came back. And uh, he's actually undergoing the same stem cell transplant that I underwent. So it's interesting, once again, that I've been able to share some words with him in terms of like, okay, this is how you're going to feel. There's some days that are going to be a little rough, you know, because the way that the stem cell transplant works is you go in, they do what's called conditioning chemo, which is uh, basically they give you chemo for an entire week to kind of just to knock your, well, it kind of clears your cells. It kind of kills your cells, good and bad. Um, it's they such give, a weird, weird that they give it the word conditioning. Conditioning, yeah. They ought to just call it beat you up. Um, and then they re, redistribute your cells, which they collected before I went in the hospital. They recollect, they collected about 6 million cells. They put those cells back in your body to reproduce. But then at that point, your white blood cell count and most of your cells are, are like you don't have any. You're literally mm-hmm. at zero which is the scary part too, which is why they tell you once you're out of the hospital, I wasn't able to really go out of the house for probably about six weeks, eight weeks, um, because you know I can go to a store and I touch something and the next thing you know, I'm sick. And it's not like getting sick, like, oh, I got a cold. If you have no immune system and you get sick, you are probably gonna end up with pneumonia pretty quickly, um, which is something I'll have to kind of relate to him when he gets it done with his transplant. Like, hey man, just, you know, the doctors know what they're doing for a reason. Don't try to risk it and go to a concert or go to a ball game or whatever. Just be smart and follow what the doctors tell you because they know what they're doing. And they've seen these cases a hundred times before, so they know what they're doing. So, yeah, but it's like I keep saying, it's been a journey and it's been an interesting one. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's some people like, well, 
you know, how, how was your 2019? And in one breath, I can say, oh, it was the worst year because of this and everything. But in another breath, I can say it's been the most rewarding year because of not only the relationships, but also just the ability to, you know, uh, attain, you know, this knowledge that I have not now, now about my own illness, but also be able to share that with other people and, and hopefully inspire some people along the way. Matt, you did mention faith, and uh, almost in passing, but I know sure. it's much, much more it's than... It's huge, yeah. In, in passing, how has that helped you in, on this journey? You know, John, I, I was saved when I was young. Um, I've been a churchgoer most of my life uh, at Cleveland Baptist. My church family has meant the world to me okay. through good times and bad, and they've been there every step of the way. Uh, daily visits at the hospital, to text, to phone calls, to come into the house. Um you know, I, I have a belief system that, you know, the Lord will never, you know, the old adage, he'll never get you more than you can handle. So mm-hmm. I do believe that there was a reason why this happened and happened to me. Um, you know, a lot of times, though, people, you know, we, we had a kind of a we had a really difficult year in the aspect. We lost a, a couple of very young kids. We lost a 14 year old Mikey George, who was actually profiled, I think, was yes. on Ch- Fox 8. Mikey George's parents were members of our church at one point. He had Down syndrome, and he got leukemia, and he passed yes. away. Uh, we lost a two-year-old to brain cancer. Um, you know, and part of me wants to say, well, why didn't why didn't they just take me? You know, I'd let one of these kids live, but that's not how the Lord works. And you know, to not get in, into too much of the theology of it, I, I sort of sometimes had to ask myself, like, all right, what what am, what am I trying to be? What is the lesson here? You know, sometimes I think we just we, like you said, we kind of tritely just say, well, we, you know, whatever it is, it'll be, you know, but like, I always, I'm trying to look for more. I'm trying to look for like, what is it the Lord wants me to, to learn from this whole, you know, illness, you know, yep. is there something there, you know, and I don't want to just, I don't want to just, how can I say this without again, sounding like, I don't mean it, but like, I don't want to just get healthy and then just be like, that was no big deal. You know, I want to remember throughout this. It's pretty this, hard to look at that and say, it's not a big deal. Right, you know? but but I think, you know, as we move along in the world, you know how it is. It's like it's like we always want to go to the next thing, you know, where I want to try to be able to remember what it was that helped me along the way and also the people that helped me along the way. But, you know, again, the faith part of it was just was huge, um, you know, and I was I was very happy from the perspective of I was able to share that with a lot of people that maybe people didn't know about it from me before or maybe they didn't um, – they, they didn't realize how, how closely I felt about it or how I felt about it. And again, I'm not the type of person that's ever going to sit here and get on a pedestal and start preaching at you. But if I can at least share um, one of our friends, Rob Polinski from WEOL, I don't think he'd mind me saying this. He's like, I've read more scripture because of you in the last year just on your Facebook messages and your <laughs> tweets than ever before. That's great. You know, I don't I don't have a problem with that. And I don't mind sharing that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's a big part of my life. And, and again, I can't relay enough how important it is um how how much how much love we've been shown by our church family and you know it's a it's a bigger church so sometimes you can get lost in the shuffle but they've been there every step of the way and it's been it's been a really fulfilling you know year in that perspective well it's just great to know that you're coming along well and and that that faith is is such it's part of it yeah a a, a big part of it it's a good thing Mm -hmm. Another reason I wanted to talk to you, uh, Matt, I mean, we've known each other, you know, being members of the media for some time. You've been in journalism for quite a while. Sure. And I think there's, uh, at least initially, the advent of the Internet, a lot of journalists such as yourself, quote-unquote, mom-and-pop 
uh, organizations, if you will. Sure. You know? And uh, so, first of all, you're now connected with SI.com. Yep. But you had a website. What year did you start your, your NEO Sports website? Insiders, we started in August of 15. Okay. So, four years ago. How um, is it getting something like that going with all the other competition? And right. What were some of the pitfalls? Well, I, th- I think part of it is, first of all, establishing what you want to do because there's so much out there. Um, you know, I try to tell young kids now that want to get in the business, you know, when I was a teacher at the Ohio Media School and, and mm-hmm. things of that, you know, you're going to change your course probably 10 times throughout your career if you stay in this long enough. But the one thing you got to understand is like this day and age, there is so much you can do. Sometimes you got to take a step back and sort of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of focus in on one thing. You know, instead of like, I want to cover the Browns, Cavs, Indians, Ohio State, the Blue Jackets, the, you know, whatever it is. You know, for us, it was, you know, after Fox Sports, uh, after Fox Sports, the Internet side of it went down, you know, we, we, we recognized that there was kind of a dearth of, you know, really reputable, good Cleveland sports websites. Waiting for next year always comes to mind. I love Scott. Yeah. And he, they do a great job over there. quite a while ago. They, they've been around for a long time, and they, to me, are the, the gold standard. But once you get past that, there wasn't a lot of really good ones. Of course, Cleveland.com, I mean, they're a business, you know, from the plain dealer side. So... You know, editorially, they can't... And they can't, didn't begin as a, as right. a website. They, they were an They were, not, they were a newspaper. Paper. Yeah. Um, you know, I think all the TV stations attempt to do it from a perspective, and I think some of them do a great job, and some of them don't maybe do enough. But for me, I was like, you know, if I could get a crew of people that would want to do it, you know, mostly, to be honest, for fun, because we weren't exactly bringing in a ton of money at that point, um, and cover games and everything. And my relationship with the teams helped out because... You know, when I contact the team and say, hey, could we cover and, and go under the moniker of NEO Sports Insiders, the original thought process is if I was somebody who didn't have that relationship, they might be like, no. You know, yeah. but because of my relationship, they were like, yeah, that's fine. Um, so now we're four years old. Our high school coverage, I think, has been really well received, especially from, it's interesting, the one sport that we tend to excel in is hockey because mm-hmm. not a lot of people do high school hockey. True. This year's been a little different because I've been the one that's been mostly the, the you know, the kind of the guy that, that runs that portion of our site. And unfortunately, with my health issues, I haven't been able to get to one game yet. But we will get there. Um, of course, the Baron Cup in February is a big event that we cover every year. Um, we did all the high school championship games and everything down in um, down in Canton and everything like that. So, um, yeah, we've had that site for four years. Then, of course, the situation comes up with Sports Illustrated. Um, I come home from the hospital after the transplant. And the first conversation I have is with Mark Patterson, who is used to be with Scout and now is one of the main managing editors over at Sports Illustrated. And, you know, kind of right away offered me the position to be the Indians editor, a position that, frankly, if you're in journalism, you're not going to pass up. You're just not. I mean, SI is still, whether they've gone through their own struggles or not, it's still a gold standard of writing. So, um, you know, we had to come to some agreements on what I could still cover on any OSI and what I couldn't. And part of that was Browns and Cavs because it's direct competition. And we agreed to that. But I still have the Indians perspective on there. And a lot of that links back to my SI coverage and also the high school coverage. So we're going to keep that going. Um, The SI side is pretty exciting because, you know, we have TJ Zuppi, who was with The Athletic. We have Alex Hooper, who was with 92.3 The Fan. Um, And we have some other people that might be joining us down the road. But, you know, it's the offseason. 
there's not a ton out there. But for the Indians, they've had such an active offseason from the rumor perspective. And if you know there's about, you know, yeah. as far as the Internet, John, you know that that drives traffic. You know, if I put up, like yesterday, I put up something about, you know, Jim Bowden, a former GM of the Reds, came out in, in, in an article in The Athletic and talked about how he thinks in February the Indians are going to trade Lindor to the Reds for a couple of players. I put that out and boom, it yeah, just explodes. Out is what it well, it's sure. And you know what? I understand it because, you know, I think I think a lot of Indians fans still want to find – I mean, I still think there's this this hope upon hope, and it's not going to happen, unfortunately. I hate to break it to people, but I still think people think that somehow, some way, the Indians are going to, you know, pull up a pillow and find $400 million and sign Lindor. It's just – it's just not economically feasible for them right. to do that. So at some point, he's going to get traded. Until that time, you know, I think we need to just, you know, enjoy the fact that he's here. And I know I'm sounding like Dolan, Paul Dolan now, but um, I think you just have to appreciate what he brought to this organization. You have to hope that, you know, maybe this is the window. This year is a window of still having him. I still think that if I'm the Indians, I still listen to offers, but I still think they're not going to do anything with him until either July or next offseason. Sure. I still feel in my heart that he, you know, Chris Hannett, he said it a couple times, and I don't think he's saying it just to blow smoke. He says, I expect Lindor to be our opening day shortstop. Um, it'll make for really interesting, you know, journalism if uh, if they do trade him because there's going to be a whole lot of people not happy with it. But, yeah. you know, with what we want to do with the uh, Cleveland Baseball Insider, which is the moniker we have over at Sports Illustrated now with the Indians, is, you know, just really hit it hard, provide as much coverage as we can. Um, the nice thing about it is, you know, Alex, myself, and TJ were all credentialed, you know, through the Indians to and be at games. you guys know the ropes. You've been there. We've been there a thousand it. times. I'm actually scheduled as of now to be more not only covering the home games, but I'm also going to go on the road. Um, not every game, of course, but I'm going to try to do, you Pick know, your spot. yeah, Detroit's, the Chicago's, maybe the Minnesota's, the, the Baltimore's. Um, and, you know, and again, I think that, you know, if there's, if again, if you look at it, there's some really good Indians websites. But again, I think the one thing that we're going to try to bring to our fan base is the fact that, you know, we have this, again, gold standard of Sports Illustrated behind us to drive traffic. And hopefully we'll be able to, to you know, have associations with, you know, our, our media here, most of which I know, like yourself, guys like Jensen, Andre, you know, Al Pulowski, Hoinsey, guys like that, and also be able to, you know, just provide people with coverage, you know. So um, I think it's going to be a great ride. I think the Indians this year have still have that window. Um, yeah. I know that some, some people are saying it's completely shut after trading Kluber, but I don't know what Corey Kluber they saw last year, but he wasn't very good when he pitched anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, was, he was just he was struggling. Himself. Yeah, yeah, he was not the same guy. And as much as I love Corey Kluber and he was a great guy to cover, he, he's on the downside of his career. So the Indians, I think, looked at that situation and said, all right, what's, what can we get out of this? And, you know, Emmanuel Classe and, of course, Delano DeShield. So we'll see. But I think the Lindor story itself is going to continue to drive viewers and, and readers to the site, which is sure. great. And I think as we continue to move along, they'll have some more technology-wise, probably video, you know, podcasts, things like that. So it's an exciting time. And Maven, which is the company that brought SI, I know, has a lot invested in it. So we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Well, there, it is kind of an exciting time because you can you guys can attack stories in a lot of different ways. And sure. that's... That's kind of cool. And, of course, one of the biggest overriding stories in baseball is related to the Lindor thing, the whole yeah. aspect of the, the rich, can, yeah, the rich pe- teams can afford to, to, to go out and, and, and yeah. try to get someone like a Lindor or some of the other big Mike Trout. Mike or, Trout. Well, and, back in the day, what, you know, now yeah. that he's signed. So but, yeah. If it's broke, as some people suggest, how well, do you fix it? 
Well, I've said all along, I still think a salary cap for baseball is what. I think the salary cap is what. What's keeping that from happening? I think the union. I just think the union doesn't want it because they're seeing certain guys being able to pull in these $300 million contracts. But anytime you've seen a player sign for that much money, it's almost immediately regrettable. I mean, sure. look at look at the San Diego Padres, John. They signed Manny Machado last year. I think it was 300 or 330 or whatever it was. There was rumors during the season that they wanted to trade him. Now again, I don't know how much validity you can put in that, but you know, are they going to are they going to really want to be locked into a contract paying a guy 30, 40 million dollars a year in year 6 and year 7? I don't I don't think so. And you know, I was working with 92.3 back in 12, 2012, and we were in Dallas for the winter meetings. And the last day of the meetings is when Albert Pulos decided to go to Los Angeles yep. to play for the Angels. And I remember, I don't remember what the deal was at the time, but it, I, all I remember is that it was a, it was a 10-year deal, and of course he was making a boatload of money. Um, I looked at that right away and said, that's not right. It's not I mean, sustainable. it's just not sustainable. First of all, you know Albert Pulhos is not going to be Albert Pulhos from when he was with the Cardinals. You know, he might for the first year or two. But look at him now. Now he's basically an afterthought with that organization. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still got some pop in the bat. And he still, you know, can hit 250, 260. But he's not the same player. Um, you look at the, the, the Detroit Tigers and how they've had to bottom out. You know, Miguel Cabrera, there's another one. I mean, there was no way sustainability-wise that he was going to be able to hit 370 with 40 home runs and 120 yeah. RBIs every year. Um, I don't know how they fix it unless they want to go that route of a salary cap. I don't, I don't know. We've seen this trend last year, and now we're seeing it more this year, that really the players it hurts are the mid-level free agents. Um, Jason Kipnis is one. Jason, he's going to get a one-year deal somewhere with a minor maybe league a minor invite. league invite. Yeah, I mean, and it's amazing to think about that. Three years ago, this guy with the Indians was, you know, sliding in a home in Game Seven, pumping his fist in the air, and now he's basically, as I had said before, an afterthought, and he's going to be an afterthought to an organization. Um, it's an interesting trend that baseball is going in. In some in some respects, I think they've got to be very careful because, you know, either that or agents have to look at it and say to themselves, okay, what can I do for my client? You know what I mean? And, you know, you looked at, like, you know, Scott Boris. I mean, I think they ran it down. He had, um, you know, Bryce Harper and, you know, and I think he had a number of these other guys that are in the $300 million club. But at some point, it's... There's not room enough for all of those right. guys. And, you know, some people have said, and I kind of agree with this, that Lindor might be worth $400 million by the time it's all over if he goes the distance and goes to free agency in two years. I mean, how again, great player, great kid. We've seen this kid since he was, you know, bushy-tailed and bright-eyed and, and everything like that. But to me, it's like... Is it really worth it? Is it? I mean, if, okay, he goes to New York, wonderful. He goes to Los Angeles, great. But I mean, long term, is it really going to be something that pays off? I don't, I don't know. I think that's why, even though I've I've had my own misgivings with the sport in general because of things that have happened over the last maybe five six years, I think the NFL's got it right. I think the salary cap thing with the NFL works because. You can see a team like the 1998 Rams, who we were talking about before, go 4-12, yep. and 12, and the next year pick up a couple you know, mid-level free agents. They didn't pick up anybody big. Find a quarterback. They found a quarterback, <laughs> and the next thing you know, they're winning the Super Bowl. And how many times have you seen a team go... You know, five and eleven, six and ten, like maybe the Browns, and the next year they go eleven and five. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the you know, ninety-one Steelers, seven and nine, they bring in a new coach and a new culture. The next year they're eleven and five. You know, and they win the division. I mean, it's just you know, and I think part of that is that teams that in the NFL anyway that find a way to fiscally be smart 
and spending their money are the ones that are long-term successful. And I wish baseball would, would, would appreciate that because I think the Indians have done a really good job with that. You very yeah. rarely – I know that everybody goes back to, well, what about when they signed Swisher and Bourne? I think if anything else, that ought to show people that signing free agents just for the sake of signing free agents is dangerous because look at the how the Indians were hamstrung with Swisher and Bourne. They never worked out, you know. Michael Bourne got his hand stepped on early into his first year with the Indians when they played the White Sox yep. and was never the same player. He was never going to be Kenny Lofton anyway, which is what some people thought. And Nick Swisher, no offense, he was more bark than bite. I mean, he was, you know, yeah, the whole... He was a rah-rah guy. He was a rah-rah. He was on the bottom. He was on the, the, I should say, the downtrend of his career. And he was more about doing the OHIO thing than he was about being a great clubhouse guy. And... You know, the Indians had to go out and overpay. That's the one thing about free agents that people tend to forget. No free agent wants to just get market value. They want to get over market value. So they're, they, they're going to go for the gusto. And I think we saw it last year with Machado and Bryce Harper. And you're going to see it with Altuve. You're going to see it with Lindor. You know, Mike Trout, of course, has already set the standard. But he's, yeah. he's staying put in Los Angeles, which might help teams that want to give a guy a hometown discount to stay with that organization. But... You know, I, I have a hard time calling somebody like the Dolan family cheap when they've already offered, you yeah. know, Lindor. We don't know how much, but we know the rumors stated anyway two years ago was at least $100 million. I have a hard time telling anybody how to spend their money. But when you're telling me an owner's offered a player $100 million and the player says no, I don't know what else you can do, especially yeah. in this market. Well, let's go back now to, to just the whole scenario for Frankie Lindor. Sure. Incredible talent one of the best all-around players in Major League Baseball. It seems more logical to me, even though you know you can't afford to sign him to a new deal, that's never going to happen. You still have two more years of service for this guy. You're not sure. going to get anything for him. I'm saying this front before... If you, you go the distance. Yeah, if you go this, you're getting zero for him. But what could you get back for him that would even come close to equaling what he brings to you and keep your window open for a couple of more years. Is well, there any logic to that at all? No, there is, John. I think that, you know, the one thing that the Indians front office has done an incredible job of, it's manipulating their pieces and parts of trades to making sure that they come out ahead. I think we saw it last July with Trevor Bauer. Yes. You know, originally the Trevor Bauer situation was going to be a simple trade to the Reds and the Indians were going to get back a player or two and that was it. Instead, they get the, the Padres mm -hmm. involved and they get a guy in Fran Mel Reyes who a lot of people, myself included, think this kid's going to bash 40, 50 home runs, maybe as early as this year. Um, you know, would the Indians behoove themselves to bring back Yasiel Puig? Maybe. But again, if Yasiel Puig is this great player, why has he not been signed? You know? Um, you know, there's been a number of trade scenarios, especially with, you know, guys like, um, I'm trying to remember some names. I mean, Jim Bowden yesterday and the Athletic wrote it. And, you know, guys like Verducci and uh, John uh, Morosi and, and, you know, the the insider guys yeah. like that have thrown the out Heyman's, these, yeah. the Heymans of the world. They've thrown out these Buster Onlys, these, these incredible scenarios of what the Indians could get. To me, I think you've got to, number one, you've got to at least get one, if not two players who can be in your starting lineup day one. I think I think that's important because first of all, does the Indians still need a corner outfielder and and eventually they're going to need, you know, I think Jose Ramirez is probably the next guy who's going to go to that DH route. I really do. I know he's okay right now at third base, but I think down the road, he just looks to me like his body type and the way that he hits, mm -hmm. he's going to be a guy that, I don't want to say he's Miguel Cabrera, but I think he's going to be that type of player that you want to just see hit. Carlos and that's okay. Kind yeah, of? sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
you know, they've still got Santana for another, what, two years, I want to say, so that's safe. Um, but, but, you know, to have two guys that, that can be on your, you know, can be on your 40-man major league roster right away, I think is important. Number two is, of course, you need pro- you obviously have to get the top prospects. And I think, you know, the game, the name that obviously everybody talks about when you talk about trading Frankie Lindor to Los Angeles uh, being the Dodgers is Gavin Lux. They don't want to give up Gavin Lux, but I think the Indians have been smart in saying they haven't said this, of course, but we all kind of, you know, surmise that they have said that's the guy we want. You know, Gavin Lux and Dustin May. Dustin May is a pitcher. Lux is an infielder. Those are the two guys that the Indians really could use. Um, you know, and again, we have to remember that if they go ahead and trade Lindor, they need a shortstop. If they don't have anybody right now in the organization, I think, that can play that position on a daily basis and be even close to as productive as Lindor. Yeah. So one of the guys they get back better be a major league ready shortstop, you know, if you think about it. So two major league ready players, maybe two prospects, and maybe one of those you know, classic to be named later players <laughs> that, you know, you hope turns into Michael Brantley, right. like they did when they traded uh, CC to CC. the to the Brewers back uh, in 2008. You know, the big player in that deal was Matt Laporta, if you remember. He was he supposed to be the, out. and he never panned out. I mean, I cannot tell you how many nights Manny Acta would just uh, pound his head against the wall because he would try to play this kid and that he just never... He just never came to be the player that everybody thought he was going to be. But in turn, they got Michael Brantley, who was a great player with the organization for a while. And I'm sure that they would love to have him right now as one of those corner outfielders. But, you know, Michael took, you know, a pretty got a pretty hefty raise and went to the Astros and made the final out in the World Series. So I guess it worked out for everybody as far as that's concerned. But, yeah, two major league players that are ready to go day one, two high level, you know, high to mid level prospects. And maybe a player to be named later. I think you got to get four to five players. I really do. Wow, that's a big bushel of stuff. You were mentioning, uh, obviously, talking about the Indians. They've been mostly a playoff team since sure. 13. And a lot of it's Terry Francona. We we know that he's one of the best managers in baseball. You briefly mentioned the Steelers, mm-hmm. uh, the epitome of um, a solid, long-term stability, stability yeah, in stability. a franchise. And then the folks now, let's branch over to the people in Berea. They it just doesn't seem like they can ever figure out a way to have one stability and then sustain success. Yeah. It's just and and I I'm at loss for words right now as to, you know, what's the best method, who's the savior to come in. Why is it, Matt, that both the Steelers and the Ravens, two very good franchises, stable franchises, can kind of go out on semi limbs on Tomlin and Harbaugh yeah. and hit two home runs. They hit bombs with these picks. Oh, yeah. And I would think if the Browns went out on a limb, and I guess Freddie certainly could be as limby as a comes, <laughs> Freddie uh, Kitchens, Yeah. and they just absolutely swung and missed with yeah, this guy. Yeah, they did. And, you know, it's, if you look at it really from the Steelers' perspective and the Ravens, the two teams that have the most stability in the division, the Ravens have had two coaches since, uh, what, 99, 2000? Uh, Brian Billick, who, of course, won him a Super Bowl, and now Harbaugh, who's won him a Super Bowl. And then the Steelers have had three coaches since, what, uh, 51 years now. Chuck Knoll, Bill Cowher, and now now Mike Tomlin. Um, You know, part of it, you can use the word impatience. And I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people are slamming the Haslams for, you know, doing exactly what they kind of said they weren't going to do, which is blow this thing up again. And I think... Well, I, I wonder think, how they could have forgotten whatever lessons they might have right. learned being minority owners of the of Yeah, the of the Steelers. Team. Well, how, how could that be? I almost wonder, though, you know, I was thinking about that earlier, too, when I knew we were going to talk about this subject. 
you know, how much did Haslam really have to do with oh, sure. that, the Steelers? I mean, Sitting he must have been, yeah, he, he, I guarantee he was a lot more on the outside looking in. And evidently, if there were any lessons to be learned from the Rooney family, he didn't really do a good job in learning it because it just appears to me like he was, you know, it, it, none of that is translated to this Browns regime. And that's been a shame for the fan base. I thought that this year, if they could have went seven and nine or eight and eight and, and had... I want to use the term stability, but also just had a drama-free year. That would have been fine. No game day brain farts for the coach. I don't know if there's another team in all of sports that has as much drama on a weekly basis as the Cleveland Browns do. And I know that that is easy to say because we live it and we're sitting here. But, I mean, you could literally, I mean, I'm (laughs) sure somebody's done it, but you could sit here and make a list from week one on. You know, week one, you got Miles Garrett punching a guy. Uh, uh, Greg Robinson kicking, kicking a guy. People, right? You know, week two in the Jets, you got the uh, you got the uh, OBJ's, OBJ's uh, uh, face shield or whatever. I mean, you go on and on and on. You know, Pretty the much next, almost something every week. Yeah, almost. you know, the 49er game, you got Nick Bosa with the planting the flag or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, the, obviously, it goes without saying, because I've watched it a bajillion times, the Steelers, the first Steelers game with the whole, uh, yeah, you know, the, the whole Garrett. Uh, Garrett incident. And it's just, you know... I don't know if it's, you know, good players can get away with certain things, but to me, everybody had to be on the same page this year more than ever because, number one, these guys had never played together. Even Jarvis and, o- and Odell, even though they played together at LSU and they were really good friends and everything, they'd never played yeah, together at the orange. professional level. The other part of this was the fact that, like, you know, you were still talking about a second-year quarterback who, you know, I know a lot of people are, are criticizing, oh, he made too many commercials, he made this, he made that. He did pretty much what a lot of people in his position would have done. Absolutely. But you do begin to wonder how much of it, with Odell not being at minicamp, with, you know, these guys not playing a whole lot in the preseason. You know, I mean, my dad and my brothers, who are diehard Browns fans, I mean, I remember them in August kind of saying, like, this doesn't look like a team that's going to win 12 games, you know? And I think the fan base got so amped up. It was such a letdown. You can't, but it was such a letdown so quickly. I mean, when they lost, I think the game that everybody, you know, to me, the season officially was over when they lost that game in Denver. I think when you lose to, was it Brandon Allen? It was a kid who had never started before. Brandon Allen. Brandon Allen. When they lost that game, and then that night was the night that the, I can't even remember the guy's name, but whatever the safety was who came out and made a death threat against Dustin Fox. uh, Jermaine Whitehead. Lewis Whitehead. I, to me, John, at that point, if I, can I was... still remember him going back at Dustin Fox right. on Twitter. If I'm Freddie what Kitchens... with these people? If I'm Freddie Kitchens or, or if I'm Haslam or Dorsey, you know, that was another thing, too, that I think became evident. And I know Marla Ridenauer wrote a sensational article about this. I think it was after either the Arizona loss or it was right around that time frame. She's like, where's John Dorsey? He has disappeared. And John really, if you remember... I don't think we had a John Dorsey press conference the whole year, even after the whole incident with Garrett. I think he was. I think he spoke uh, by week. Mm. That was it, and that was only. And that's six, the standard to that really was six talk. Six weeks yeah. in, it's usually you know it's usually not uh, kind of like yeah. a mandated thing. Yeah. By week, you you trot out the GM, and well, we just didn't. And I think a lot of pressure was on John because he realized he he was he, in over. He had picked a guy who was way a guy over his head. In way yeah. way. I think the biggest mistake... Never got any pushback when we were ripping Freddie Kitchens. Oh, no. No no one pushed back because I felt 
within that building, they all felt the same way that everybody right. outside the building felt. The other biggest mistake that I saw Freddie make day one was the fact that he brought in an experienced offensive coordinator and then didn't let him call yeah. plays. I, that I, was again, the main tag that was, as I told you before, my dad and my brothers, we all, you know, at some point watch games together or at least in the same, you know, text messaging. And we're all like, what, what is Todd Monken? What does he do? If he's not calling plays or he's not getting the opportunity to input a game plan, why do you even have an OC? You know, and I just, you know, I've never in my life heard of a guy, and I know Shannon Sharp, and I think it was Stephen A. Smith pointed this out extensively throughout the season. A guy get a head coaching job going from coordinator, I'm sorry, from, yeah, uh, from, from position, position coach. coach to coordinator to head coach in eight months, within eight months. Yes. And then not only become a head coach of a team that was expected to make some pretty big noises this year, but then decide I'm not going to use the coordinators they give me. I'm just going to call my own plays. Why, if, if you're Freddie Kitchens, why didn't you just go to Dorsey or whoever and just say, I don't want an OC. I'm going to call my own plays. And that To me, John, that had to be a surprise. And even right then, and that, of course, happened in, what, July or August, that had to come as a surprise to the organization that, wait a minute, why did we bother hiring Todd Monken and giving him a check if he's not going to call and do the job that he's supposed to do? Um, I think also in the summer, when they had those win the practices in Indianapolis. The Indianapolis. That was the and, start of it. Yeah. And I, I think that they they kind of overreached what yeah. they're trying to be. Yeah. They wanted and, to set a precedent yeah, of being and, this and big, it, bad. It, 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 and I, it yeah. doesn't pertain to football nowadays, no. per se. And the 18 penalties on opening day, and again, Garrett getting, uh, the, not yeah. suspended, but the, um, you know, he had personal foul for yeah, punching. For, Robinson we, getting suspended, or not suspended, getting ejected, rather. He got ejected. aggressive tackles of the uh, Jets quarterback. Yeah. Yeah, you I know, mean, put him out there of the game, was there was no. It was almost like the inmates running the asylum from day one. And I thought that if you are, you know, a lot of people want to criticize the Harbaugh's and the Tomlins and guys like that for maybe sometimes giving players too much leeway. But you notice that those guys can find a way most of the time to hone them in and to get those guys back to playing under under control. You well, know what I mean? If that's the case, otherwise they just take those players and say, "All right, you're going to sit. You're going to sit." Think those those two teams have their they're a small council of sure. seasoned elder statesmen Absolutely. who can and the come Browns down don't. and give looks to rookies and young yep. players and say, son, this is not happening yeah. here. No, you're absolutely right. We don't right. do this in Baltimore. We don't do it here in Pittsburgh yep. or whatever. And can really let them know that uh, your way or your 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 youthful zaniness Exuberance. is not, yeah. it's, it's not going to apply. This is a man's game. you got to be mature you, you have to be aggressive but you got to be mature yeah. and be smart about it and i think there were so many instances like you said whitehead with the death oh, threats every week every week there the was visors something. the shoes the you and, know the this the that you know and then which brings you to the end of the year yeah news conference to you know change the the head coach change the general manager um one more thing before we go let's no, of course. let's talk about the search or the new the new guy the new, or guys, there's going to be more yeah, one. The new yeah. way that, that Haslam wants to do this, does this make any sense to you? I see the model for hiring the coach and then the GM like they did in San Francisco. That's work. Mm-hmm. Shanahan, they're saying Pete Carroll, the same deal. He went, they hired him, then Schneider, I think, is the GM out there. Mm-hmm. That's worked. Those are two very good examples of something working. But I think we have to, we have to realize this is Cleveland, and yeah. a lot of times... Um, we're thinking about this being football utopian. So far, it's not been anything close no, to that. No, And if you were, if you look at it, the two guys that got hired, you know, Kyle Shanahan had been in good 
structures and systems for a while. You know, Atlanta, I mean, he came to Cleveland for a little bit, you know, obviously, and that was a difficult situation. But then after that, he'd been pretty successful as an OC. Pete Carroll at USC, but he had also been an NFL head coach with the Patriots and Jets. So he had had some of that experience behind him. Um, I don't, (laughs) I, I just shake my head because, you know, once again, you know, Jimmy Haslam, they've tried this before and it hasn't worked. And, you know, they say that, if you know, fool me once, shame on, on you. Fool me twice, you know, shame on me, you know. And I think he, he's he got to take precedent for being responsible for a lot of these issues and mistakes and everything like that. And, you know, and the whole thing with now you've got an analytics baseball guy that's going to be, you know, part of the search and everything sure. like that. And I don't want to come down on D. Podesta. I don't know him. Right. I don't know what he brings to the table and what he doesn't. But I'm only going by the track record. Um if you look at some of the great systems, we talked about extensively about the Steelers and Ravens. Kevin Colbert has been the GM in Pittsburgh, I think, since 01, has done a tremendous job. You know, Ozzie, of course, with the Ravens. Yes. I don't think we need to even go there on what the type of job that he has done or had done until he retired before uh, last year. You know, the Browns, you don't even know who's running the show half the time, and I think that's part of it. I think that Jimmy, now with this whole thing about, you know, wanting the coach to be a part of the GM hire, to me, it should be reversed. I don't know. I just go by, you know, because then what that tells me is that the general manager has no power. Yeah. It really does. Because then on draft night, who makes the call? Well, and here's the other weird thing about this. We're hearing potential GM hires. How should we even know any of that stuff? Right, right. These coaches haven't come out and said, like, like uh, one of the top candidates, uh, we've heard of, of course, Josh McDaniels, Cause, cause McCarthy, buddies, JCU, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, his buddies in, in uh, Nick Cesario or whatever. Nick, yeah. Nick, Nick Cesario. Cesario, yeah. Jeepers, I covered those guys at John Carroll. <laughs> but um, so, you know, you're, you're having these names thrown out. How do you know who exactly that Mike McCarthy really would like to work with right. or would suggest? How do you know who uh, Greg Roman would like, uh, Robert Sala? How, right. how do you know who these people and, and, That's and part of it. And don't raid. You get a job from an organization. Don't raid the team that you just worked for. Right. And I, 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 I still mean, remember. Yeah. Bela, I still remember Belichick and Saban on their special on mm-hmm. HBO, both saying, "It's like we helped you become who you you are." And now you're going to steal take, from us. Yeah, it's almost yeah. for me to make well, your staff. And it makes no sense. Let's be it's honest. It's not fair. You think the Patriots, who are the gold standard, whether you you know you like how they've done certain things over mm-hmm. the years with Spygate and all that other stuff. If the bottom line is they're six-time NFL champions, and them and the Steelers are the only two that have done it this way. The bottom line is Belichick is not – okay, if McDaniels goes, he goes. But you really think that Belichick and the way that Robert Kraft and all those guys have run that system, they're just going to let McDaniels start picking away at this coaching staff? I don't – There'll be some I don't blocks. Th- there's definitely going to be some blocks. And I think it – you know – you know, there was that early thought process that, well, McCarthy should be the guy. McCarthy should be the guy. And I remember listening to the Haslam presser yesterday, and I think it was Tom Withers of AP asked, you know, well, why didn't McCarthy get an interview last year? Jimmy had no answer. No. He had no answer. It's almost like he just was, like, oblivious to it. Like, well, he just wasn't on our list. Well, okay, well, then why all of a sudden, away from the game, does he become a big candidate now? Like, what is what has he done in the last year that all of a sudden makes you think that he's – now worthy of the coaching job. And, I th- and put yourself in a, a year ago. Why wouldn't a team that had been flopping around in, you know, in in a in a kids pool for for months and months, <laughs> yeah. not not being successful, 
why would they discount a guy who, yeah, although he had an ugly exit from Green Bay, why would yeah. you discount a guy that was to the, to the playoffs nine years, right. was Super Bowl. available right then and there, and yeah. not even... Not, not even talk to him. And, and you know... Did um, he blow them off? I can't remember. No, they, no. no the, the bottom line, from what I keep reading and hearing, is that he never even got offered an interview, which is just, again, I just well, that I shake was my Dorsey's, head. That was a Dorsey That was a Dorsey search. thing. Yeah, that and, was the Dorsey thing. you know, I think thing. in some ways Dorsey just loved the magic dust, the offensive magic dust that he got from Freddie. Right. And, he, and, and I think he just wanted to will it to happen, and it did. Well, and he then you go, you go back to the whole thing that, you know, the part of the reason why Freddie got hired is because of his relationship with Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see now that that's a huge mistake. You know, you can't the teacher and the and the the teacher and the jock can't be best friends. That's just the, they can't work. It obviously can't work. You know, but you know, I think whoever they bring in needs to be a guy who's got you know substantial coaching experience at a high level. Maybe not as an NFL head coach, but at least as a coordinator. I think Kevin Stefanski is another name that I think they're gonna they're gonna look at very hard because he was in the running last year. Yeah. Um, but after that, John, I I don't know. I think. You know, what scares me, and it goes back to way back when, when they wanted Chip Kelly, is that they're not going to get the guy they want, and it's happened with the Mike Pettin hire, too. They're going to have to settle, and you're going to have this revolving circle all over again, and here's what's going to happen now, is now you've got these good young players. You really do. Baker, Nick Chubb, Garrett, Odell and Jarvis, you know, Denzel, Greedy. These guys are going to go, well, I'm a free agent in a year. I'm not coming back here. Because that's going to be the scary thing. Because, you know, as many people have put their eggs in the Baker, you know, basket or the Nick Chubb basket or whatever, these guys are also businessmen and they're also smart enough to, you know, forget about the whole thing about these guys going, oh, come and get me. I don't. I don't, yeah. if, I don't know if I believe that because it was Mike that's, Silver. You know, that's just a reason that, yeah. for all the drama. But if you're smart, if you're Nick Chubb and you're looking around the league and you're looking at how all these other organizations are run and you're in Cleveland and you're having this much success in Cleveland where it's supposedly difficult to get the job done, wouldn't you like go, I'm not, I don't want to come back here. I want to go to Kansas City. I want to go to Seattle. I want to go to Green Bay or even Pittsburgh or Baltimore, you know, and I don't know. I I, you know, I don't like the Ravens. I'm just like everybody else. I, don't, I mean, I think they're, you know, they're the they're the stepchild of the Browns or whatever. But you have to be impressed with how they took a quarterback who nobody believed in, who thought, oh, he's gonna, he's RG three, junior and all that, and they built their team offense anyway around him. And now they're the best team in the AFC. And I, I don't know who's gonna stop them. I really don't. I think it's, I think Baltimore is going to the Super Bowl as much as that's gonna pain people in Cleveland, but. You know, the Browns, you know, they had this nice young quarterback who a lot of people believed in. But instead of, you know, trying to make sure that they did everything to cater to that, instead he was out doing progressive insurance commercials and, you know, getting married and everything like that. Just too many distractions. And Baker's a small part of it. I don't want to just pound on Baker and say he's the reason why. But his struggles were a microcosm of the struggles of the entire organization. And, you know, I hate to say it again, but, you know, season ticket holders are going to have to think awfully hard because I think a lot of people bought into this year thinking this is this is finally it. And the disappointment that I've seen out of fans is probably more so than I've seen out of any group of fans in Cleveland, whether it's the Cavs, Browns, or Indians, in, a, in an awfully long time, you know. You can lose a championship game like the Indians did in the World Series. You can, you know, fall to the Warriors in six or whatever like the Cavs did. But when you are expected to be a contender – and not only are you not a contender, you are back to being a six and ten team. You're, what are you drafting? Ten, twelve, somewhere around there. Ten. And ten. ten. Okay. I mean, if you would have sat here a year ago, John, and said the Browns are going to go six and ten, 
They're going to fire the coach and, and the GM on New Year's Eve, and they're going to be drafting 10th. Oh, and by the way, the Ravens are going to be 14-2, and two, and the Steelers are going to go through three quarterbacks and still finish 500. You would have been like, you couldn't write that. You just... And it, it just, like I said, I know I'm, I'm going on about it, but it just, it, it, it really does make me feel sorry for the fan base because they have waited so long. And I know we've all said this, but it's just, and, and I think it's going to be a while. I really do. I don't, you know, it's funny because we talked about how teams can make that one-year turnaround. Yep. I mean, unless the Browns get it absolutely right and things fall absolutely their way, which we know they never do, unfortunately, I don't, I don't know. It could be two, three years before we even see another opportunity like they had this last year. And who knows how different the team's going to look by then. Yeah, I'll leave you with this. The rest of the league, as far as turnarounds, yeah. they're little sailboats. The Browns are a thousand foot right. or freighter that takes forever to turn around. It's and scary. Still work it on. It's scary. Crazy. And as I said, the fans, you know, the one, as I tell fans all the time who argue with me about attendance and they should spend more money, you know, the Dolan should spend this or the da 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 then don't go to the games because that's the one way you'll hurt them is by not going to the games. And the Browns sold out their season tickets quicker this year than I think they have in any year since 99. So you know what? Then don't go. If you if you really feel that strongly about it, stop going and stop supporting because that's where it will hit the Haslam's the most In the is that is the pocketbook. You know, until you do that, though, you're feeding right into the madness, you know, so... And I'm sure opening day next year against whatever team they're going to lose to, and you know it'll be sold out, and there'll be fans thinking they'll go 14 and or not 14 maybe, but 12 and four, and you know, and we'll be sitting here a year from now, you and I again, and probably having the same conversation. Crazy. Enjoy the talk, buddy. Appreciate it. I love you, John. Thank you, and thank you for your listeners, and and for everybody out there, as I've said before, even on Twitter, who have taken a moment, a second of your day to say a prayer or, or send well wishes my way. Um, I can't thank you enough for that. It just means the world to me and my wife and my family. And um, Lord willing, this year will be a lot healthier than 2019 and excited to bring tribe coverage your way and uh, and hopefully some good stuff on the Cavs and Indians, or I'm sorry, Cavs and Browns as well. Thanks once again to Matt for the great chat. And also inform you, there are other members of the Northeast Ohio sports media whom I've had some interviews done in recent podcasts. We talked to Ken Carmen from 92.3 The Fan. He is a very recent podcast. Danny Coglin, my longtime associate here at Fox 8 and a longtime scribe for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and other publications. We talked to Danny on one of our recent podcasts. And my buddy Andre Knott, who is the sideline and or the dugout interviewer, among other things, for uh, Fox Sports Ohio and covers the Cleveland Indians. He has been one of my recent guests as well. I encourage you, if you get an opportunity, to check out the archive. There's lots of interviews with Cleveland sports figures, high school football coaches, people that are in the sport of endurance uh, sports. That's something I'm very much involved in due to my ultramarathoning and triathlon endeavors. So there's people there that I encourage you to have an opportunity to uh, check out some of those interviews as well. And again, I thank you very much for listening to our pod, and we look forward to seeing you the next time around on Tellich Talks. Thanks again.